let's talk science. From the University of Groningen, this is MindWise podcast, hosted and brought to you by psychology students. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Marco and I'm presenting today's podcast episode, which is a conversation I had with Marike van Voort a few weeks ago. She's an assistant professor in the Cognitive Modeling Group at the University of Groningen, which is part of the Faculty of Mathematics and Natural Sciences. So she's also the first podcast guest from outside the Department of Psychology. Her expertise lie within the fields of artificial intelligence, memory, decision-making, mindfulness, attention, and also cognitive modeling. And during our conversation, we focus very much on her work on mindfulness. But I can assure you that the conversation holds valuable insights, not only for the mindfulness geeks among you. If you want to find out more about Marike, you can check the show notes. There I included links to her web pages. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's podcast episode with Marike van Voort. From your literature and the people you were involved with, I gathered that you're part of this new and growing generation of scientist practitioners, both having extensive training in a contemplative practice and in science. And I would be really interested if you could unpack this for us a bit, how you fuse your personal interest with your academic interest. Yes, well, um, this is a question near and dear to my heart. And in some sense, to be honest, it didn't happen as a sort of plan it just happened more I feel more by itself um, because I as I started to study uh, in college I became interested in the brain and wanted to study neuroscience um, and a separate track of my life uh, in the meantime I had pursued contemplative practice because I felt that in school I was taught a lot of facts and things, sort of intellectual knowledge, but nobody taught me about how to deal with emotions, how to sort of cultivate um, my heart in some sense. So I found out how to do that. And for me, contemplative practice in particular, I'm a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner. That sort of really made sense to me. And that's, I felt like there I, I learned how to actually deal with these emotions. And so those were two separate strands of my life until I was um, in, a peer, in, in a year that I took off between college and grad school. I was in Nepal and I read this book from the Mind and Life Institute and found out that one could actually study contemplative practice scientifically. Well, at that time, I didn't actually have a way to do that but slowly but surely I uh, figured out sort of independent research projects in which I could study this thing that I was also doing mm -hmm. 
And as society changed over the years, I mean, when I was a grad student, um, I didn't dare tell anyone about studying contemplative practices such as meditation or mindfulness scientifically because it would be career suicide. And nowadays that's changed. So uh, now I have my own lab. I can sort of um, have an excuse to do it. Um, and it's actually even um, in general um, received fairly positively. So that's very nice. That's interesting. And later on, I would like to get back to um, how you perceive the development of the past mm -hmm. decade when it comes to the mindfulness research field. But first, maybe one more question um, relating to your background. Um, how essential do you think it is to, um, um, for the progress of the field to have meditating scientists involved? Oh, that's, yeah. Well, I think in some sense, it's, it's very natural for someone who studies the brain and the mind to also study their own minds. Um, you know, in, in some sense, I feel like also in my contemplative practice, it's really about finding out what my mind is and what it can do. Um, and maybe by actually taking the time to observe it, I could find hidden aspects of my mind that otherwise would be hidden And um, so I think having a background in both can give you new perspectives on your mind. For example, in my research, an important theme right now is to understand the contents of distraction. If you think about um, cognition just from an information processing perspective, then distraction is just like you're not doing the task, you're not doing anything. But if you've spend any time looking at your own mind, you know that can, distraction can come in many different shapes and forms and mind wandering can come in many shapes and forms. And actually um, going from daydreaming to rumination is a sort of gradual transition. It's not a categorical one. So I think these kind of perspectives can really be um, enriching your practice as a psychologist and another or a psychologist or cognitive neuroscientist, uh, in, as in my case. And the other uh, dimension to this is that um, I'm right now involved in very exciting research with uh, Tibetan Buddhist monks about um, the monastic debate practices they do in their monastery. Um, I think having my own contemplative practice and taking their contemplative practice seriously really allows us as scientists to investigate this whole new phenomenon, maybe also use some of it in our own academic practice, who knows? Uh, we'll, we'll have to first do the research to find out whether that's useful. On the other hand, we could maybe learn from these people that, that have spent uh, sort of thousands of years observing their own mind and developed a codified body of knowledge about it, um, maybe we can learn something new mm. in uh, cognitive science or psychology. Yeah, yeah, I can clear how this um, meeting point can be improved through that, but also just for our own Western scientific discipline, how through meditation we might be able to sort of develop less of an attachment to our own hypotheses, to our own way of working, mm. because uh, I think some of the scientific misconduct that we see is sparked by this um, frantic clinging to one's own ideas and almost this um, um, this feeling of being offended when things are disproved or even challenged. Yeah, so I don't think that studying um, or, or doing contemplative practice by necessity 
um, uh, inoculate you against that. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, there has been some uh, interesting studies that found that um, in medical students who um, underwent uh, mindfulness training had less um, uh, uh, sort of problems with frauds than um, a, a control group of medical mm-hmm. students. And the other side of it is is maybe even um, more pragmatic as a, I feel that for me as a scientist, um, it, it's very stressful these days, especially as an early career scientist, a PhD student, postdoc, a junior faculty. And um, every time I feel my, uh, my practice really helps me to take a step back and be like, okay, well, you know, my, world, my work is not everything there is to my life. There's much more. So it helps me really to stay sane and to, to see every, all the uh, misfortunes and uh, disappointments, the paper rejections, the grant rejections, um, uh, all of that into a bigger perspective. And mm. then it's usually not as bad. <laughs> yeah. So you, you touched upon um, some of the work you're currently conducting, and I thought it would be interesting to have you talk about the your involvement with developing computational models of meditation and maybe for the psychology students who are a bit unfamiliar with the lingo that's more common to artificial intelligence could you perhaps shortly explain what a computational model is and then secondly how you try to develop a meditating computer and what the benefits might be of that okay Yeah, um, so in general, I'm a strong believer. Um, Maybe that's a funny thing to say. But uh, I'm a strong proponent of uh, using computational models to study cognition, whatever aspect it might be. The reason is that um, uh, computer models of cognition, or shorthand often cognitive models, are sort of formalizations of theories of cognition that allow you to Um, uh, simulate the behavior of a human participant in a certain task and derive consequences from changes in uh, conditions or things like that. And they they specify a mechanism by which someone would solve the task. So in essence, when you're making a computer model of cognition, you specify an equation or an algorithm with which we mean sort of a set of computer rules, you could say, of Uh, what a computer does in a certain situation and how that proceeds over time. Uh, You specify that to explain uh, what you think a person is actually doing. Uh, So interestingly, actually, a lot of the model theorizing is developed on the basis of introspection as well. And then you think, what will be a plausible model? And then you try to uh, give the model the same kind of task that you give the humans and you see whether the behavior of the model is sort of in accord with what the humans do and test it that way. So it is, uh, in essence, nothing more than another theory, but it's one that you can actually simulate and derive um, quantitative consequences from. So I think that's why it's important to use these kind of models because they can be much more precise than models um, from a uh, that are just words or boxes and arrows very often. Um, now, I and that's the reason that I decided to um, try to use those to uh, describe meditation as well. Now, of course, this is a, not very easy to say the least. 
it's actually quite difficult because very often there are some verbal models of meditation even though that's even that is fairly limited but there are some words uh, verbal models with boxes and arrows but then sometimes very quickly you find that um, transforming those models into information processing components that a computer could simulate is quite hard for example an important component of uh, meditation practice most me types of meditation practice as well it you you are trying to concentrate on something then what happens is you you get distracted in some way you start daydreaming or mind wandering and then at some point you realize that you have been daydreaming or mind wandering or something and you go back and, and that happens through a process that's called decentering. But what does it actually mean, computationally speaking? What do people do when they decenter? So uh, thinking about that is not very easy, but that's exactly why we need these models, because they show us what's unclear in these verbal models and they force us to think about what kind of um, computations people could be doing. Um, so I think that's the main use of trying to develop a meditating computer. I don't really believe that computers can meditate. Mm. Um, and I don't even claim to capture the whole process with that. I think it's just a useful thinking tool to be mm. more precise. So to clarify my own thinking a bit on that, on that issue, if we could simulate a certain aspect of mental disorder and then we could run a certain program that would relate to a certain meditation technique, or several of these programs, then we might perhaps be able to predict what kind of meditation technique might be more effective or beneficial depending on our goal for that disorder. Absolutely, yes, that would be an important goal. So part of it is just describing what kind of meditative practices or contemplative practices there are and how they differ from each other. But that's this same formulation could also clarify what exactly is being trained by different types of meditative practices. And um, if we know that certain cognitive mechanisms are going awry in, say, depression, where you might, for example, I, I use this, this um, idea of a, a sort of a thought pump or a mental attractor in which you can go around and around in some circle of of thoughts about uh, often your failures um, or your lack of self-worth and it's very difficult to get out of that if we could um, if it turns out that um, particular type of meditation is really good at allowing you to um, uh, or changing your thought mental habits your thought patterns so that these sort of attractors get entangled for example um, that's at least a current hypothesis that I have then um, it could explain why a certain type of mm. contemplative practice could be beneficial. So yes, that would be an important idea to try to use these computational models to make predictions for what mm. kind of mental training could be beneficial for different kinds of people. Interesting. And so I think that's a nice segue into another point I wanted to discuss. And these are the challenges of the mindfulness research field and also potential solutions. Now we're talking a lot about hypotheses and what we might be able a few years ahead into the future. Mm -hmm. But if we start by the basics, then I observe that even the definitions of mindfulness are often very unclear. And so are the operationalizations and so are our measures. Um, and there are many debates around that. 
what do you in your work see as the greatest challenge to exploring meditation? So in some uh, part of my work, I, I do this sort of theoretical modeling. Now, a, a challenge there is um, uh, the sort of the lack of the definitions, actually, as you mentioned, and that's also why we have this sort of theory. Um, so lots of different people might be using the same words to mean different things or different words to mean the same things. Um, and that really makes it more difficult. So that's why I think this computational modeling could help clarify that to maybe develop a single language. Um, now, that's not the only language. It doesn't capture everything. I'm very much aware of that, but still, it's a good mm. start. The other difficulty is um, is data, good data. Um, because very often now what I observe in the literature is a sort of, um, uh, not confounding, but sort of putting together and, and assuming they're the same thing of, of um, mindfulness inductions with eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction courses mm -hmm. with people who <clears throat> spend decades of their lives doing um, Zen meditation versus people that do all kinds of different Tibetan practices. Um, and all of those might be quite different things. And um, at this point, some some people just label everything as meditation and think that uh, they mean the same thing. And that makes it uh, makes the results probably, I think, also a mess <laughs> sometimes. So we yeah. need a much better data on the description of what people are doing. And that could potentially help us to organize the little data that we mm. have so far on what what the effects are. And then we need also a lot, a lot more data mm. uh, on experimental measures. Because so far, what I also see a lot in the literature is just people equate scores on a mindfulness scale with actual mindfulness, mm. which might not be the same. But there is, mm. uh, as you sort of also alluded to, there is no good real um, measure of mindfulness and so mm. yeah yeah i found it quite interesting that um grossman's paper from 2008 was titled defining mindfulness by how poorly i think i pay attention during everyday awareness i think we need indeed a wider repertoire and more focusing on what people do rather than what they sort of say about themselves because but um, a big problem in these questionnaires mm. that uh, Steve Grossman uh, pointed out was really um, that people just um, copy the language they've sort of heard in this eight-week course and then they think they're more mindful because they these phrases are just more yeah. familiar. <laughs> yeah. um, but that doesn't mean necessarily that they are more mindful and mm. well let alone even the definition of what being mindful it means but um, and I think more behavioral kind of things um, might be helpful. So there's, for example, also some work uh, into um, measuring mindfulness by means of sort of breath counting tasks mm -hmm. and seeing how well people keep track of that. Now that's still mostly concentration and not as much mindfulness. Um, but there's also some ideas of maybe asking uh, people's uh, loved ones or people around them, like, how do they behave? Because actually, um, uh, one uh, very uh, wonderful Buddhist scholar named John Donne, he often says, well, the traditional measure of how your meditation is progressing is just whether you're less of a jerk. Mm -hmm. 
And I think looking at those kind of things is both from a um, sort of the the, an actual perspective of of what these of of having good measures is Mm. a good idea, but also from the perspective of wanting to get outcomes that really benefit society and benefit people. I think looking at how people behave in relation to others, how kind they are. how, how much they get um, swept off their feet by some challenging situations. I think those might be really mm-hmm. more important than sort of whether they feel they are um, in a sort of Zen-like state or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And sometimes it is suggested that we should combine first, second and third person data. So we mentioned a lot of third person data mm-hmm. now. Measurements, maybe the loved ones, maybe how do mm-hmm. people react to major life events or maybe neurofeedback that is being tried out. What would be examples in that context for first and second person data that, that you, you can think of? Mm. So actually, I would say that the measurements of the loved ones, those are like second person okay. data because they say something from someone else's perspective about how they are mm. behaving. Um, and first-person data, I mean, I guess we are mostly stuck with the, the questionnaires um, uh, with, the, with their limitations, so we mm. probably need better questionnaires. Yeah, yeah. and also it's sometimes the, the difficulty is that, well, there are multiple levels of first-person data, so actually the, the, these subjective measures that are self-report questionnaires are sort of first person but sort of not um well they are first person reports but they are uh, then quantified into a single Mm. number which might not actually capture the original thing as well that you wanted to uh, specify so there's a whole field of um, um, phenomenology that really tries to get at the richness of people's experience and uh, getting at more detail Mm. at how they experience certain events so that might be interesting as well though I personally don't have as much experience with it um, so yeah yeah I'd like to shift gears slightly um, I would like to trigger your intuitions about something so l- 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 let's see um, and it concerns the following observation I made I feel a discrepancy between the way I've been taught meditation in the context of Burmese-style Vipassana retreats, the way mindfulness is operationalized within psychological research, that would be the second point. And the third point is that how the research results have been hyped onto a worldwide media stage. Mm. And then the fourth point, how these putative effects were then extrapolated for interventions in almost every single sector of our lives how have you experienced the trajectory of mindfulness research and some of its applications over the last 12 years? Yeah, so so when I became for the first time aware of this field, there was obviously very little data out there at all. So mo- nobody really knew how to define things, how to measure things, and people are just shooting in the dark. Nowadays, um, there is much, much more data out there although it's still quite little actually and it's true that um, a lot of it is the the little that comes out is still hyped um, sort of usually beyond proportion so I'm worried about that 
and I'm actually working on a uh, an article together with some uh, some colleagues on on this mindfulness hype and saying, hey, uh, we need actually to be much clearer about what we're talking about in a certain study, um, what the limitations are, um, how they might be um, helpful for some people but not helpful for other people. We need to actually find out for which kind of intervention is helpful for which kind of a person. Because um, for some people, mindfulness is probably not a good idea. For some people, it's very good, um, depending on what your goals are. Now, people's goals also shift over the course of their practice. I mean, I started to practice, um, well, some kind of meditation and a whole actually Buddhist path eventually in the beginning, maybe to deal with my emotions. But in event- eventually it became probably in some sense much bigger. Um, and so for people motivation shift and that has an impact on the results and then another uh, a big problem out there that i've observed in this uh, field is that um, people started looking at how it affects attention because in some sense you know paying attention is part of the definition of mindfulness by john kabat-zinn but then it's being equated with paying attention and it's been hyped as if Mindfulness really helps you to pay attention in a much more um, effective way. Now, I think there's very little evidence for that. And in my experience, it's also that's not the point. Um, While you're using paying attention as a practice, um, as sort of a tool, the the whole point is to observe your mind and to realize how it gets um, into all these tangles and problems and sometimes makes bigger problems than there are. But that's very hard to measure. It gets stuck in all these mental attractors that I mentioned before. Um, but we we haven't gotten good measures. So I think there's lots of hype about some usually marginal results, whereas mm. the real stuff we haven't mm. yet even be able to mm. measure. Yeah, there might be another method methodological issue. I mean, we can. It's probably hard to randomly allocate intention. And it might even be harder to randomly allocate people into um, intensive re- retreat conditions, um, as you said earlier, because our eight-week, twelve-week programs might not be intense enough to even look at mindfulness as a mediating or moderating factor mm-hmm. for the outcomes. Um, so, one more thing I wanted to bring up, and also sort of maybe get get some advice, because mm-hmm. um, you might get the sense that I feel a little invested in you know um, in, in these issues and that's the term mindfulness mm-hmm. so thinking about how meditation is being appropriated outside of a Buddhist context I observed that it has become almost this neoliberal like a neoliberal commodity mm-hmm. it's not only that you can meditate but that you should you have a certain mm-hmm. responsibility and um, and another worry that came up and in looking into the stuff a quote by Slavoj Cicic popped up that says Western Buddhism is becoming the dominant ideology of global capitalism because its meditative stance is arguably the most efficient way for us to fully participate in capitalist dynamics while retaining the appearance of mental sanity. Do you think it's reasonable to be concerned about these things and how concerned should one be about these manifestations? Yeah, so I am witness to a lot of... um discussions about this uh, I think it's a complicated issue because on the one hand um, you don't want to um, I don't agree that it's it's necessarily a good idea to 
tell people about college when they're in kindergarten because it might just be confusing. On the other hand, pretending that mindfulness is uh, or other contemplative practices are just a quick fix that will go will solve everything and that will work for everyone without any hazards is 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 worrisome. And um, I think it's important to show, well, there is a little bit of scientific research that shows benefits for people. Try it out for yourself and figure out what what it does. And um, I think there needs to be much more emphasis on people's own sort of critical judgments, kind of like also the basis of Buddhism itself. Um, Whereas, by the way, I should emphasize that mindfulness is not necessarily Buddhist, although it's derived from that, but it's its own thing. Um, But I think one important thing that should probably be in there is this critical discernment of um, what is it doing with me? Um, Does it help me or does it not help me? How does it make me behave? And actually, how does the world function? Um, So rather than it's in in its true form, I think it, it should, it can only really be a way that allows you to see more clearly what's right and what's wrong in the workplace and how maybe capitalism sometimes um, uh, creates work conditions that are not acceptable Um, and also how you react to it as a person. Um, So I think it should be more about figuring out what's going on and not it providing sort of a quick fix dose sort of that um, uh, smooths over everything and uh, an older rough edges and it's just a kind of vacation that you can go to anytime in your mind because first that's not true and secondly that's that's also really not then it's probably not the right kind of meditation that people are doing they're doing something but probably it's not quite meditation although that's a a tricky thing to say because Mm. I'm uh, I'm not really a meditation teacher. So, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, because it's also a question of, about life in general. I mean, how conscious do you want to live you, your your life? Mm-hmm. How how much of the onion do we want to peel back? Or are we happy with a certain illusion that we have set up for ourselves? And maybe mindfulness, the way it is propagated through businesses and stuff, is just enough to remain in a comfortable illusion with, with less stress? Yeah, and well, I mean, in some sense, that's, it's also beneficial if, you know, um, there's some form that old people are are, um, are sort of lured into just taking a moment to rest um, under the name of mindfulness um, because people are so stressed out and so sleep deprived these days. I mean, and a lot of mindfulness courses I hear from, from people uh, from teachers that uh, people go straight to sleep <laughs> when they are taught meditation, actually not just mindfulness courses and uh, meditation retreats as well. I mean, it's probably very beneficial that people are um, get a chance to just stop and rest. I know for myself, at least that in itself is quite great already, mm-hmm. even though it's not a whole mindful path. So mm-hmm. You know, in that sense, um, it's not going to be the cure that's going to solve everything, but it's probably beneficial. But for some people that have traumas um, or other kind of um, psychiatric problems um, that I'm not so qualified to say stuff about, it might actually bring up stuff that's not helpful and uh, that they should go into therapy. Actually, in my own uh, the Buddhist group that I'm a part of, um, there 
are uh, very often in retreats therapists involved so that when stuff comes up they can also deal with that because Buddhism by itself is not also often well equipped to deal with those kind of things Mm -hmm. so actually Western psychotherapy might be very beneficial there um, even on the sort of further stages on a Buddhist path and Mm -hmm. I could imagine in other religions as well So that's yet another dimension. Uh, right. So it, it's it's actually quite a complicated landscape if you start to think about yeah. it. Very complicated, yeah. yeah. And uh, I don't want to get us off on a, another tension. We're almost half mm-hmm. an uh, half an hour in. There are only a few more things that I want to mention. But another issue that arose for me recently, maybe you can give me a pointer towards mm-hmm. literature or people who might clarify my thinking on the point, is that we have this... Um, self-focused western therapeutic approach mm-hmm. self-determination and and ego depletion and self-development mm-hmm. and um, self-focused rumination and that's the cause for depression like self 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 mm-hmm. and now suddenly we have um, things like mindfulness-based cognitive therapy or mindfulness-based therapy in any sort of way where um, we have a technique that grows out of a f- philosophical framework that basically says the self is an illusion and all these things, sensations, feelings, emotions, they're like uh, arising and passing away and the ego is just a continuous identification with that stream mm. of consciousness and isn't there like a great dissonance mm. between the two? How can how um, do we integrate that? Yeah, that's a really nice question and I think there too it's sort of a, a developmental stage. Um, when people start with mindfulness type practices very often they just want to feel better um they feel very stressed and they just need some you could even say excuse to slow down and take a moment to rest um but part of even mindfulness from the very beginning this was um mentioned actually it's been mentioned very clearly by Edel max a psychiatrist uh, from belgium He says, you know, kind attention is a crucial part of um, mindfulness as well. And so in the beginning, it's it's mostly focused on yourself, but kindness is already in implicit in it. And then on the Buddhist path, there's obviously a lot of emphasis on compassion and others, at least in certain Buddhist paths. Um, and nowadays you see also that people are uh, experimenting with compassion-based interventions to in some way also um, go beyond this focus on the self the other part is that you mentioned already actually is this focus in terms of this focus on the self is that as you spend some time observing your own mind in a contemplative practice whatever it may be very often you'll discover sort of how the reactions and the thoughts are just passing And they're not as real. So even if you don't have a philosophical framework that explains that in terms of no self, because people can get too conceptual about these things and then actually therefore thereby miss the point. So if you want to really go into that, you should probably follow some kind of a tradition with some kind of a qualified teacher that could help you deal with that tricky trajectory and not just play around with it too much on your own. Um But some part of it is already some way implicit in the mindfulness uh, interventions at least and and there can actually be profoundly helpful as well because people realize it's not just me that um, has all these thoughts and emotions and the thoughts and emotions are not as permanent as I always in some sometimes you feel they are. 
Um, so some part of that selflessness, as it's called in the Buddhist tradition, is in some way already implicit in it. So yes, there's the dimension of how that you will uh, discover some of that yourself, and and very often actually. Uh, you find, uh, for example, a teacher like Stephen Batchelor, um has told me that he has lots of people that do a mindfulness course and then start to do his courses in Buddhism because they have these discoveries about the self and, and, and questions about the nature of thoughts and, and life that need to be answered and are not answered in a mindfulness course and then they, they sort of go onto that path. Mm-hmm. Um, and other people connect more with compassion and through that sort of find this other aspects of of the mind and, and the self or the no self mm-hmm. uh, so the, there are different ways that you can sort of navigate these these questions that very often naturally come up um, in over the course of doing stuff like mindfulness mm-hmm. and I would say that's also a good thing mm-hmm. and it's it depends on the person sort of what way you can best deal with that um, and it's very important to do, to do that, I would say, not just by yourself, but in a community with a teacher and where the teacher is not necessarily someone who knows everything, but rather someone who helps you ex- explore and somebody who could sort of see where you really go off on a, a bad tangent and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Okay, I have a few more questions, just mm-hmm. short ones. Um, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? Well, it's it's a hard question because I feel like what I've learned over the years are not so much some particular thing I should be doing or should not be doing. Um, I I was actually quite lucky that I just was able... I've sort of always been following my own sort of opinion and my own ideas and to just trust that it um, and that that is the right way. I sort of knew it in a way already anyway because I did it um, but I, I guess I'm now more convinced that it's the right thing to do even when maybe sometimes it's against the grain of the society or against the the grain of it seems logical but just to follow your own um, intuitions and instinct and your own heart you could say I think that's the most important and then to just trust that um, yes yeah. um and before we wrap up, is there anything else you, you would like to add? Yeah, so I think when when I observe this field of um, contemplative practice and research, um, I observe that there's so it seems like a very polarized world where on the one hand you have these people that seem almost like believers in mindfulness and trying to prove that mindfulness is going to fix everything. On the other hand, you have people that are sort of extremely skeptical and say, well, this is total nonsense and crap, or that this is all Mac mindfulness and people are butchering this beautiful tradition of mindfulness. Um, but as I've, I've hopefully been able to convey in this interview as well, I think the most important thing is just to, to stay curious and to observe for yourself to to not get really um, pulled away into believing that this is the greatest thing that ever happened but at the same time to also see the beauty of and the possibilities of these kind of contemplative practices I think they hold a lot of potential for people to just have extra tools and new ideas to 
um, live their life as a good human being and um, to maybe discover new dimensions of their own mind. But we're really so much at the beginning, so don't just don't run off with it. Just you know, stay curious and, and keep investigating. I think that's the main thing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay. This podcast was a production of Mind Voice for the Department of Psychology at the University of Cornell. Let's talk.